<clears throat> Good morning, Advent Hope. Good to see all of you here. Happy Sabbath. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day that you've blessed us with. We pray that your spirit would be with us in a special way, that we would have a deeper understanding of the love of God for each one of us, and that it would change our lives so that we would be representatives for you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm thankful to be here this Sabbath. Uh, It's uh, my last week to be a resident, so I'm glad for that. Um, End of four years of neurology residency, and I'm thankful for how God has been with me over the last few years. And, And so I'm just thankful to be here with all of you and to share with you what's on my heart today that God has impressed me with. I would invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Step back for a minute and think about what a privilege it is to be called a son or daughter of God that God loves us so much that he gives us the privilege to be his children. Now, I want to read a a passage from Desire of Ages, which is one of my favorite books. This is found on page 483. It's from the chapter entitled The Divine Shepherd. And if you've ever doubted God's love towards you, I would encourage you to read this entire chapter. Here we are told, however much a shepherd may love his sheep, he loves his sons and daughters more. Jesus is not only our shepherd, he is our everlasting father. And he says, I know mine own, and mine own know me, even as the father knoweth me, and I know the father. What a statement is this, the only begotten son, he who is in the bosom of the father, He whom God has declared to be the man that is my fellow, the communion between him and the eternal God is taken to represent the communion between Christ and his children on the earth. And this is one of Ellen White's most profound statements, I think, in all of her writings. Because we are the gift of his Father and the reward of his work, Jesus loves us. He loves us as his children. Reader, he loves you. Heaven itself can bestow nothing greater, nothing better, therefore trust. And so my burden for each one of us today is that we gain a deeper sense of God's love for us and that it would inspire us 
to manifest love towards God in the way he shows his love towards us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. I'm so thankful that, that God loves us, that he gives us the privilege to be his children. And in our first passage we just read in 1 John 3, we, it talks about the manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Now, last Sunday was Father's Day. And all of us have a father. Whether we like that fact or not, we all have a father. And today I'm going to tell you bits and pieces about my father and the things that I learned from my father that taught me more about the Heavenly Father. And I hope that <clears throat> whoever your father may be, and some, many of you here are fathers, that ultimately we will turn to the Heavenly Father to see God's true representation of what it means to be a father to each one of us. So, <clears throat> in 1 John 3, we see that it's a wonderful privilege to be a son or a daughter of God. And growing up, I counted it a privilege to be the son of my father. He was a very hardworking person. Grew up in Michigan, moved to Bakersfield, California when he was 15 years old. He was born into a, a family that was Nazarene, and his mother was a Nazarene minister, which is a very interesting background. And he actually planned to go into the ministry. And he started off at a Nazarene college, actually um, at the time it was Pasadena College in Pasadena. It's since moved to Point Loma in San Diego. But he started off there intending to become a Nazarene minister. And somehow he had such a fear of public speaking that he decided not to go into the ministry. Um, and so he changed his major and became an English major, and that wasn't really for him either, and somehow he ended up as a Nazarene over at La Sierra, took pre-med, and eventually became a physician. Now along the way, and for all of, the, all of you out there who are physicians, or really anything, um, this is a good example to all of you. There was a physician in Bakersfield, California by the name of Marion Barnard. Marion Barnard happens to be the father-in-law of Lewis Walton. He's since passed away, of course, Marion Barnard has. But Marion Barnard was the family physician for my um, grandmother, who was the Nazarene minister. And he somehow got, Dr. Barnard somehow got his foot in the door with my dad and started giving him Bible studies. And my dad ended up going to medical school in Guadalajara, Mexico. And Dr. Barnard called down to the Adventist church in Guadalajara, found out who the Adventist medical students were, and had them befriend my father, and they continued Bible studies, and my dad eventually became baptized. Now, that just shows you the amount of commitment and how proactive this physician was in winning souls for Christ. And it's a rebuke to me sometimes because I've never... I don't think I've ever gone to that kind of a level of commitment to save one soul. But that just shows you the type of person Dr. Barnard was. And as a result, my dad came into the Adventist message. The story goes that my Nazarene 
minister grandmother came to the office the, for the first time after my dad became baptized, and Dr. Barnard said, so what do you think of your son becoming an Adventist? And she looked at him and said, well, I probably feel the same way that you would feel if your son became a Nazarene. Um, so <clears throat> my grandmother never fully accepted my dad's decision, but my dad was willing to take a stand for the truth no matter what. And the Lord always blessed him for that. And growing up, my dad taught me to love the Lord, to spend time with him every day, and to study his word. And one of the things I'll always be grateful for is that um, when I was maybe 12 years old, he had me memorize five verses for each of the pillar doctrines of our faith. Sabbath, sanctuary, spirit of prophecy, state of the dead, second coming, and the health message. And I've always had those verses. You know, when you memorize things when you're young, you have them right at the tip of your finger the rest of your life. And so I was always thankful that he um, encouraged me in that way. And in many ways, he gave me an identity to follow after. We all have... Um, as I said, all of us have fathers, and all of us receive an influence from our parents. And if you think of our parents, really, it's typically our fathers that give us a sense of identity, who we are, where we're going, where, what we should be doing. And it's our mothers who round things out. Unfortunately, I had a, a very godly mother as well. Um, I tell people who know me well um, that I'm a toned-down version of my father, which is hard for some people to believe that someone could be more intense than me on certain issues. But I can thank my mom for at least being a little bit more toned-down because if you've met my mom, she's probably the most gentle person you'll ever meet in your life. Um, she wouldn't hurt anything. And... Um, and so I'm thankful for both of the parents that I had. But, you know, <clears throat> in this world, humanly speaking, um, there are imperfections and limitations that come from the relationship with our parents. And some of you know that my father um, developed multiple sclerosis back in, way back in 1982. He was first diagnosed. And I was about five years old at the time. I had no idea what that was all about. Um, and he did pretty well for the next 15 years. He had the relapsing, remitting form. Of course, I'm a neurologist, so I could tell you all about multiple sclerosis. I won't do that. But obviously, the fact that my dad had multiple sclerosis probably was influential on the decision that I made to go into neurology. <clears throat> and. For the first 15 years, he had relapsing, remitting MS. He would have flare-ups. His left leg would go out in six weeks. He wouldn't be able to walk. And of course, that's very scary when you're 14 years old and your dad's a physician and he's you know, supporting the family, mom staying at home, raising the kids, and then dad has an attack. His left leg goes out, and then you start to wonder, where's the money going to come from? How are we going to support ourselves? How, and it, it was definitely a test of our faith and a trial of our faith um, during those years. I graduated from an academy in 1996, went on to college, and by then 
my dad had definitely started to deteriorate. He was about 57, about, yeah, about 57 when he um, was disabled from his job as a physician. He just couldn't keep up with what he had to do. So, <clears throat> in 1997, he basically retired, stayed at home, and when I, whenever I'd come home from college, he would be there. And in many ways, our roles reversed. Again, these are the human imperfections of the world in which we live. Um, for those of you who are familiar with multiple sclerosis, you get plaques in your brain, and it messes up the way that the brain can transmit information. It's like getting a big pothole in the road, and you try to go around the pothole. Well, eventually, the potholes become so big that sometimes certain information just can't get around those, those plaques. And some things were embarrassing. We'd go to church, and he would be talking out loud, and you could hear every word that he said while the speaker was preaching. And I'm sitting next to him saying, Dad, stop. And he would just laugh at me and keep going. And that, of, of course, was a, um, the effect of his disease. He was disinhibited and lost his sense of appropriateness in many ways. Of course, as time went on, he, things got worse. And he eventually was placed in a nursing home because um, we could no longer take care of him. And he knew that as well. Now, <clears throat> I'll come back to this story a little bit later on. You may wonder what happened. Um, but I just tell that, I, I tell that story to start off just to remind us that we have the blessing of having parents here on this earth who love us. And in many ways, it reminds us of the love of God for each one of us. I never doubted my dad's love for me. He always provided. He always worked with me. We always had wonderful visits, wonderful conversations. We were able to, to um, challenge each other at a, a higher level of, of conversation compared to other people that I would talk to, and I really appreciated that, and I certainly miss that. But we have a line of connection straight to heaven that is far better than any relationship with our earthly parents here on this earth. And I want to talk about that today. And to remind us of the perfect love of God for us. And these are verses that we all know very well, but we need to remember them. It's one thing to know it intellectually, but it's another thing to have this experience on a daily basis. John 3.16 <clears throat> John 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> Here we see a powerful reminder of God's love for each one of us. <clears throat> John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ from heaven to this earth. We know that intellectually, but probably very few of us experience it to the level that God would want us to. 
because sometimes we, it becomes so, <clears throat> it's become such a part of our understanding that we take it for granted. And this is something that God has done for us that we should never take for granted. That he sent his only son that we might be saved, his only begotten son. And in John chapter 1, referring to Jesus as the only begotten, <clears throat> starting in verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> In verse 12, we are reminded that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. God gives us the power to become his children, to become sons and daughters of God. And we see that when we become sons and daughters of God, we're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To become a son and daughter of God, to have that privilege means to be born of God, to be born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus clearly outlines what it means to be born again. In fact, in Faith and Works, page 100, First Selected Messages, page 366, we are told that God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. Justification and the new birth, one and the same. Full surrender, death to the old man. And you wonder, well, how is that possible? How can we have that experience? And in verse 14, we are told the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus lived here on this earth as the only begotten Son in human flesh, showing us how to live a life as sons and daughters of God. He is the perfect example of what it means to be a son of God. He was the Son of God made in the flesh. <clears throat> now, I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to look a little bit at the relationship between the Father and the Son, which will help us to understand the type of relationship God wants us to have between Christ and ourselves. So, notice how <clears throat> the Father describes the Son in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. While he yet spake, and this is Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Clearly, the father was pleased with Jesus as his son. <clears throat> and I would dare say that most of us as sons, with, res with respect to our relationship with our earthly fathers, want 
the same to be said of us that our Father is pleased with what we are doing. And I remember after my dad had gone downhill and he was in the nursing home, um, it was my senior year of college, and I came home, and he was the worst I'd ever seen him. He was not able to swallow or eat. This was just before they put a feeding tube in him. And I remember I brought my report card home that, that um, trip. And the reason why I did it was because it was the best set of grades I'd ever pulled in college. And I had a fairly tough major, biochemistry, so I, I was always studying. It was, it was always tough. There was always another test to take. And they were always hard. And, um, and my dad was always getting after me to make sure that I was studying. And I remember um, I brought the report card home, and I showed it to him. And there he was laying in, in that nursing home bed. And just he didn't say anything, but the look on his face said it all. And, you know, I've never forgotten that. That, you know, as a son, we are pleased when our fathers are happy with what we are doing. And we have that limited understanding from our earthly experience. And yet from a heavenly perspective, here we clearly see that the father was well pleased with Jesus. And in John chapter 8, verse 29, we see why the Father was always pleased with Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is speaking, and he says, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. So when Jesus was here on this earth, he always did the things which pleased his Father. Now I can admit, I think it goes without saying, that I didn't always do the things which pleased my Father. Um, I got some spankings, and I deserved them. Um, if I had a son and he did some of the things I did growing up, I'd spank him too. <laughs> um, so my Father, of course... Um, did, did so in the right spirit, but I didn't always do the things which pleased my Father, and yet we see Jesus as our example did always those things which pleased his Father. And he's calling us to live the same kind of life here on this earth, to be surrendered to self, to have Christ live in our hearts, and to do always those things which pleases our Heavenly Father. That's what God would have us to do. And I want to look in the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite books, <clears throat> at the relationship of the Father and the Son. In the Sabbath school lesson this morning, Hebrews 8 was the memory verse. First seven chapters prove that Jesus is high priest. Um, specifically in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, that Jesus is truly God. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that tr Jesus truly was a human being, partaker of flesh and blood. And because he was truly God and because he was truly and fully man, he could be our high priest in heaven. 
But I want to spend a little bit of time looking at Hebrews chapter 1, which the Father is speaking, describing the relationship to Christ. In the first three verses, we see that Jesus speaks to us, or that God speaks to us through his Son, which is Jesus in the last days. And in verse 5, the Father says of the Son, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a Father, and he shall be to me a Son. Now this verse has a special meaning and memory for me. I remember um, shortly before my father died, I read this verse to him. And now obviously, this is speaking of the relationship of the Heavenly Father to Jesus. But I wanted my father to know that, that I had appreciated the relationship that I had with him. And so I remember I actually read this to him on my birthday when I turned 26 years old back in 2003. This was about three weeks before my father passed away. And whenever I read this verse, it reminds me of the loving relationship between the heavenly father and his son. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's Jesus being described by his father. The father loves the son so much. He says, I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And then in verse 6, it says, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. Now notice, Jesus has gone from being the only begotten in the book of John. Now he's the first begotten in the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to take the time to explain all of it, other than to mean that, other than to say that when Jesus was resurrected, you can clearly study it out in Acts 13:33 and Psalms 2:7 and Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus was now the first begotten. When he was resurrected, he's the first begotten, and he was also qualified to be high priest. So Jesus is the first begotten Son of God, which brings up the obvious point: if Jesus is the first begotten of his father, that means that there can be more children after Jesus. There can be a set, second begotten, a third begotten, a fourth begotten, and on and on. And Jesus and the Father want you to be among those begotten. <clears throat> now notice how Jesus lived his life here on this earth, starting in verse 8. This is the Father speaking to the Son. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. There's all the proof you need to show that Jesus was truly God. The Father called him so. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And notice verse 9. This describes the life that Jesus lived as the son of his father here on this earth. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. He hated sin. He loved the sinner, but he hated the sin. Now, <clears throat> remember, Jesus did always those things which pleased his Father. He loved righteousness. He hated iniquity. 
And when I read this passage, it reminds me that when I become a son of God, a child of God, it's not just enough to take the name of Christ and say, I'm a Christian. I am to live the life of Christ. And he lived his life loving righteousness and hating sin. And sometimes, you know, all of us as humans, we all struggle. We all have different sins that we struggle with. My particular personal struggle may be very different than yours, but we all have issues that we struggle with. We all have that one little thing that is easy to hang on to. And there was one issue in my life that I realized was a problem. I had given it up, but I still wondered what was happening and remembered the good time I used to have when I participated in that activity. It's not enough to just stop doing something that you know is wrong. The only way, by God's grace, to stop doing the sins that you used to be doing, that you used to enjoy, is to pray to the Lord to give you a love for doing right and a hatred for doing wrong. And that's a supernatural gift that God gives to us. It's not something that we can do in and of ourselves. I cannot, of my own strength, start hating things that I used to enjoy doing. That's humanly impossible. All you have to do is read Romans 7 to figure that out. Romans 7 says, The good that I would, that do I not, and that which I would not, that I do. Because we have that old carnal nature that we're fighting against. So, Jesus, though, who was made flesh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, showed us how to live a life that could overcome those sins. You love righteousness and you hate sin. And the Father was so pleased with the demonstration, with the example that Jesus gave in that way, that when he was describing Jesus as God, He says, you've loved righteousness, you've hated sin. And he calls each one of us who are to be sons and daughters of God to also love righteousness and hate sin. Now, moving along here, Jesus didn't always have it easy, of course. And in Hebrews chapter 5, describing his experience as a son... Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Hebrews chapter 5 is showing us how Jesus perfected his life here on this earth. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son... Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered, and I think all of us have learned obedience through the things which we suffered as children. 
one of the best ways that I became obedient early on was <clears throat> when I did something wrong, my dad would spank me. And again, like I said, I deserved it. Now, <clears throat> some people respond to punishment differently than others, but I always knew that my father loved me. And I reached a point, probably when I was 12 or 13, not that I ever reached a, a point where I stopped disobeying my dad completely, but I reached a point where I loved my dad so much that I didn't want to do anything that would hurt him. And there was nothing worse than seeing the disappointed look on his face when I did something wrong. And if we could think of our life in the same way towards our Heavenly Father, towards Christ, that we love the Lord. He died for us, and we wouldn't want to do anything to hurt him because he loves us. And so Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. This is specifically describing his experience in Gethsemane when he said, not my will but thine be done, but if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And so here we see Jesus giving us an example of learning obedience through the things which he suffered, and then he becomes the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. You remember later in the book of Hebrews where it says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith? There you can go back to Hebrews chapter 5 and plug that in to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> and we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12 now. We're going to read verses 5 and onward. And this describes Paul, or Paul is describing to us the relationship with our earthly father. And I'm wrapping up here. We're down to our last five minutes. I'm just going to read a few verses. The first four verses, we're reminded to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're reminded that he endured the cross. He despised the shame. We're reminded that we haven't yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. And then he takes us back to our earthly experience to try to help us understand how we can resist sin unto blood. He says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? This is very similar language to Revelation chapter 3 in the message to Laodicea. Going on to verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? And then verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And then on to verse, actually, sorry, back to verse 11, we see that this chastening is that we might be, is so that we might be partakers of his holiness. And then notice verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So the chastening that God gives to us is so that we might be partakers of his holiness and without holiness, we will not see the Lord. So the Lord loves us. He wants us to see him. So as we bring things back full circle, I want to go back to 1 John 3. Remember where it says that we have the privilege of being called the sons of God. 
and that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So as we are sons and daughters of God, we allow ourselves to be purified. And then notice verse 9, talking about being born of God. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Here we have a description of being part of the seed of God. Being part of his seed means to be part of his heritage, to have his genes, so to speak, transmitted to us. And there is that last day people, the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's Revelation 12, 17. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Notice that they overcome by the blood of the lamb. They loved not their lives unto the death, just like Jesus. Jesus, when he was here on earth, loved not his life unto death. He was willing to die eternally so that we could have salvation. In God's seed, those who are his children, those who are the remnant of the seed of Christ, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, will love not their lives unto the death. They will be just like Jesus. And I close today by telling the final chapter of the story of my father's life here on this earth. I already mentioned that he passed away. He <clears throat> continued to decline. One of the things that gave great courage and comfort to each one of us in our family was that he never complained about how his life had been taken away from him. He never moaned and groaned that he lost his high-paying job as a physician he didn't wonder, why me? How come all these bad things are happening to me? He always looked forward and looked ahead to the promises of God that someday soon Jesus will come and that the sorrow and suffering of this world will be done away with. And I remember the last time I saw my father before he died, um, I, I had been there late July, I was in between third and fourth year of medical school, and on the way to the airport, we stopped by, and I, I had sort of a, an inkling that it would be the last time that I would see him, because he had had pneumonia, I believe, already six times in six months, and he had um, specifically requested to not be intubated. He didn't want to go through that experience. He was a physician. He knew what that meant. So we went by and saw him, and I'll never forget, we, we were about to say goodbye, but he said, can we have prayer? And of course we all said, absolutely. And he, he lifted up his hand, and he was so weak, his hand was shaking. And I remember I got to hold his hand one more time, and we prayed. And I'll, just, I'll never forget the example that he left to me of someone who loved the Lord. He had a close walk with God that no matter what happened, if all of the earthly successes he had experienced were taken away from him, he knew who he believed. He had made that decision way back as a young man to take his stand with the truth with God's remnant church. And he knew that 
if he was faithful, he would have the second coming to look forward to. And so, obviously, that has shaped my life. It was ironic that um, I happened to be doing the neurology rotation in my fourth year the day he passed away and um, actually was in a multiple sclerosis clinic with our MS specialist here. And then I came home and got the call. Um, God loves us, and I, I took that as a, as a sign from the Lord that he was suffering with me, and he, it was just a little message to me that, hey, I knew your dad was going to pass away today, so I thought I would have you go through this clinic just to remind you that I love you. I'm your heavenly father. You may no longer have your earthly father here on this earth, but you always will have your heavenly father. And so <clears throat> let's do all that we can to strengthen that relationship with our Heavenly Father. I want to go back to this quote that I read in Desire of Ages about God's love for each one of us. <clears throat> However much a shepherd may love his sheep, he loves his sons and daughters more. Jesus is not only our shepherd, he is our everlasting Father. Because we are the gift of his Father and the reward of his work, Jesus loves us. He loves us as his children. Reader, he loves you. Heaven itself can bestow nothing greater, nothing better, therefore trust. Let's learn to love God more each day. That is my prayer. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that, our, that you are everlasting, Father, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you sent your Son to this earth to die for us, to give us an example of the love that you have for each one of us. We thank you that we can be part of your seed, a seed that at the end of time will be full fruits of your character. And I pray that each one of us would allow that love to germinate in our hearts so that we can rightly represent your character and your love to this entire world. We thank you for the opportunities and privileges you've given us as a people. Help us to be faithful to you and to love one another as you have loved us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.